Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to the latest edition of Trying to Hurt Cats, our philosophical engagements between usually the words of the dead and the reactions of the living. Recently, I've been a little overwhelmed with my work, academic, and personal life, so I decided to record a quick version of this series by only sitting down with one dude as opposed to a myriad of thinkers. This particular feller goes by the name of Joshua Stump and is the pastor of the Borderland Mission in Nashville, Tennessee. Mr. Stump is also the co-host of the Catacomb Podcast and is the owner of the Smoker's Abbey, a cigar shop in East Nashville, where we met for this particular sit-down. So we start our discussion with the quote, For those who love God, everything works into good, even sin. Well, this verse is misrepresented a lot of times uh, to justify, like, evil. Um, my issue with this scripture is that people will say God causes affliction to perfect us or to teach us or to discipline us and to do things like that and that's not that has not been the experience I've had with the Lord I think the verse is all things work together for good for those who love him right, mm-hmm. right. is that the one we're talking yeah. about this is, it's a paraphrase obviously it's a, yes a paraphrase so I think that that verse and then I'll get to the sin part, but that verse specifically is building a case for the beauty and goodness of God's character. In the middle of sorrow, in the middle of trauma, in brokenness, the Lord becomes present and He's there. And in His presence, there is a nurturing, a compassion, an understanding, a peace that passes understanding that occurs. And so beauty comes out of chaos and because of God's presence. So, correct me if I heard you correctly, you don't think God goes around causing chaos no. and pain like a lot of people think that he does? Because no, I, I, I think a lot of people will say, God is in control, God wills everything to happen. Yeah, I don't necessarily believe that. Okay. I believe that God knows all that God can know. <laughs> <laughs> could, could you be more vague? Yeah. God knows all the things in which God can know, but he doesn't know all the things he cannot know. Here's an illustration when we're talking about character. I always say this. If a man gets hit by a semi-truck in the middle of the interstate, someone would say, God has cursed you. God is angry with you. And this is what ancients believed, by the way, is that everything bad that happened was God doing something bad. And you see that in Job also. Yes, you see that. And it's very much a reflection of ancient thought, right? Mm -hmm. And we should clarify, Job's friends thought... God had done this to Job for a reason. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So in the same way, if someone runs across the street in the freeway and they get hit by a truck and they don't die, we might call that a miracle. But the natural law is that you get hit by a semi, you're probably going to die. Okay, so kind of based on what you just said, Mm -hmm. I've heard two different reactions to that or approaches to like what if God's will is going to went out over even his own laws. So there's obviously the snake handlers because they hear that verse in the Bible about you know snakes can bite you and it won't hurt you if you're a believer. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the folks that uh, 
kind of just like I just said, was that if God has some kind of uh, plan for you, a destiny, it doesn't matter what you do, uh, he, he's going to make a way, even if you run out in traffic. How do you respond to both of those things, that, I guess the either the truth or the error in them? Well, it's sort of like um, people take the verse, Christ has come to give you life, but not just life, but more abundant, paraphrase, the abundant life. So that's success, that's accomplishment and materialism. Yeah, again, I've heard two reactions to that. Right. You have like the Joe Olstein kind of like the prosperity. prosperity gospel. But then also, this is in the, I guess, in the progressive Christian circles, that's how they justify abortion. They'll say, well, because if a child's going to be born under poverty and not being prosperous, it's compassionate to end their life. Yeah, so I would say that this scripture means that, again, it's a testimony to the integrity and character of God that even in our suffering, we can find life that is overflowing, Mm -hmm. that is abundant, even in suffering. So I would answer to the fact that if God wanted to be a dictator and force everyone to love him and follow him, as you can tell, I'm a, a opponent of free will. Yep. You know, so I don't I don't believe that the Lord is micromanaging everyone. I remember I had a college professor. You're an opponent of free will. I am a proponent. A proponent. Okay, yeah, I was proponent. Say okay, it's my it, yeah. I probably said the wrong word. I yeah. do that a lot. I'm I'm for. I'm all for it. <laughs> and I remember, like, sort of like a youth group thing that used to be said was you know the youth pastor would say oh god has this woman for you this perfect marriage Mm -hmm. and i remember when i was in bible college the professor which i was going to liberty was very conservative Mm -hmm. and someone we were talking about that issue i was very surprised by his answer and he said no god doesn't have one person for you he goes, think about this. If you only had one person, only one person enters into sin uh-huh. and they mess up all of God's plan, right? So I really thought about that as a truth that God has a type of person that is his will for you. And I think then he gives us freedom to choose who that person is and they choose us as well. And so in this, I just see over and over that there's a grace and a freedom that God gives to his people and that his heart is that he wants to bless the relationship. He wants to, he does want to bless and prosper. And he does want life abundant. But in the reality, we can find that sometimes in the midst of suffering. So to answer your question about sin, um, all things work together for good, even our sin. I could say that maybe without sin, it would have worked out better, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But maybe we can say with sin, all things work together for good, even in sin, even our sin. Because... What happens in sin? It builds humility, right? It builds character. We learn from sin. We see empathy, empathy, compassion. We see the effects of our relationships on other people. And so when I look at that, I have to say, yes, good things. A lot of good things have come from my sin. It doesn't mean that God willed for me to be sinful, but because of, again, the testimony of who he is, we are developed and matured through our mistakes. So I'm going to do something different. I'm going to tell okay. you who said the quote. Okay. And if you have anything to say about that, you can. Or we'll just oh, pass fun. It. Okay. okay. So, so this is from Brendan Manning. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I believe it's from the Ragamuffin Gospel. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I should have known that. I did read that. I had a great deal of respect for Brennan. And I think in reality, what I loved about him the most is that he personified what it means to be flawed 
but powerfully used by God. Yeah, it's incredible how, well, not really how flawed he was, but how, you're right, he affected so many people for the good, and he was wrestling with multiple demons, it sounded like. Yes. And, you know, I, uh, it was actually this weekend, you know, I was talking to my daughter, and we were talking about the church that I pastor, and I said, you know, what we're doing is actually very important. And she's a teenager, and she's at that point where she recognizes that Christians have committed a lot of hurt, harm, and sin towards people. So anyways, we got into a conversation about God's expectation of perfection or whatever. Like, how can God use me when I'm such a broken vessel? I told the, the story, you know, I said to, to her about Peter, that Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. He's pretty arrogant. And the Lord said, you're going to deny me three times. And then we, you know that story. Um, aren't you the follower of Christ? Aren't you Peter? Follow Christ. No. So he denies the Lord three times. He runs off in shame. But the beautiful part of that is after the resurrection, God reinstates him in the ministry. And he says, Peter, do you agape me? With all your heart, mind, and soul, do you love me? And Peter's response is, Jesus, I feel you. I love you as a brother. And Jesus asked him again, second time, do you agape me? I feel you. Now the third time, he says... Peter, do you feel me? Do you love me like a brother? And then Peter says, Jesus, you know, I've already stated that I love you as a brother. Then he says, well, feed my sheep. Then he goes on, you know, we also know that he said, Peter, Petros, the rock, upon you I will build my kingdom. The kingdom of God would be built upon that. Mm -hmm. So I think, wow, what an awesome, this makes me think of Brenny Manning. What an awesome thing that God chose a guy like Peter who had so much guilt and shame from denying him that he could not even say that he agape. I said it once, I'll say it again. That leaves a lot of room for me. It leaves room for all of us, which is what's so beautiful about it, right? <laughs> yeah. Paul speaks a lot in Ephesians. You know, this is a mega paraphrase, but there's a theme there in the beginning of Ephesians. is basically like, hey, the ones who truly deserve hell... Are the ones that think they're good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. the ones who deserve that type of punishment are the ones who feel like they got it all together. Yeah, pride spoils everything. It does. And I think, to go back to this quote, I feel like I would be more arrogant. In fact, I used to be more arrogant, but then because of sin and making some horrible decisions, I can't look down on anybody, even though sometimes I slip into that again, but I have to keep reminding myself, like, the things I've done, like, you know, I've got no room. The next quote. The dependence of poor on the rich produces on one side callousness and pride and on the other depressing and humiliating debasement. Well, we see that a lot with the wealthy. You know, they feel like they, and we even see that in our discussions about taxation in this country, um, is that you have the wealthy who, they're prideful, but they're also bitter. You know, they get bitter because they have to bail everybody out and carry the burden and so yeah it is a combination between the world needs me but I'm also angry that they need me mm -hmm. 
in judgment they judge those people well let me add this to it because i you know again this is why i do this because people hear different things from the same quote i guess when i heard it i thought about people who really thrive on being a savior to groups of people including the poor and i wonder and of course a lot of people brought this up like what would some people do if there were no more poor or somebody to be dependent on them so you have celebrities and stuff that that do their philanthropy is that what they call it am i using it right we'll say charitable work charitable work yes it's easier to pronounce and i mean a lot of that's really good pr and then some of them probably genuinely feel some sense of guilt about how much wealth they've acquired and they're trying to get back in your personal and you life. can't judge their hearts necessarily because you don't know what their motive is right yeah in your personal life have you ever seen folks either maybe in your own heart or maybe other people that you've known that they end up acquiring a whole lot of pride and almost arrogance because they are people that are charitable or they care or they help and have you ever seen anybody like wake up from that and realize like oh man I have seen that a lot of times it's people that have means but they're very insecure and they feel like their life doesn't have meaning or recognition and then when people don't actually acknowledge or recognize their contribution and they don't feel appreciated mm-hmm. then they kind of become bitter and and then recluse within themselves and at that point they don't really help anybody do you know what I'm saying yeah, yeah. because they didn't get out of it what they wanted to get out of it right and again that's such a general thing because I don't know the motivation of why people do what they do mm-hmm. I have seen some of the most generous people in the world have nothing mm-hmm. and they're giving out of their 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 poverty some of the most generous givers and then I've seen people that have been given everything and they don't do anything to help someone else you know, on the yeah. on the flip side, right. you know, I've seen the poor that have been given everything, but they wouldn't give a cigarette to their, you know, to a guy walking on the street. Right. Because that there's also that poverty mentality of fear of saying, I'm not going to have what I need, so I have to hoard everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, man's heart is um, unpredictable, but predictable. It's... Um, to me, I keep coming back to the thought about motivation. It's hard to comment on something like that when you don't truly know the nature of people's motivation. This is maybe changing the subject a little bit, but mm-hmm. have you wrestled with uh, trying to be charitable and helpful at the same time not causing a dependency? Or Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's a really real issue. So what's your remedy for that? I don't know. I haven't figured it out, okay. to be honest. Where I know I get in trouble is when I feel like I have a good sense of judgment over what that person needs because I don't always understand what people need. You know, I can have someone that's in need. Well, here's our tendency. Someone who typically does very well for themselves, but they hit a rough spot. I feel very motivated to help them because, okay, I too do pretty well, but I also understand what it means to have seasons of your life where you just can't win or you need help. And so I enjoy helping people like that because I know a few months down the road, they're going to be cranking again. Right. And it's not that they're just wallowing. They're not right. waiting for someone to save them. Oh, exactly. I mean, I love, I love to invest personally in people that are hustling. That feels good. It feels like your contribution's going a long ways. But that's just probably also residue of right-wing politics, you know, growing up in the South, mm-hmm. you know, um, because there is that level of um, 
of sort of judgment to the poor. You don't want to give them any, uh, too much or the welfare state. They'll become dependent on the welfare state. And there's probably, I think it's like everything and why I find myself radically moderate on a lot of, a lot of issues because I think that the extreme right and left paradigms are, are true. There's truth in both sides. And that's sort of the paradox. But I also think about this there are just going to be people that are going to be dependent and they're not capable of not being dependent if that makes sense well sure like the ones that are have like addiction problems or yeah or let's think about mental illness mental you know? illness yeah for sure you know I look at all the time I see homeless guys here in Nashville and it's the same people if I need to find that person I can always I know what drugstore they're in or what corner they're standing on right, yeah. I see them all the time they right. have territories right and they're all sunburnt, their skin's dried out, they look exhausted, and you're just like, why are you choosing to be in this life? You live in America. Mm-hmm. Like, there are, there are probably 20 people around you right now that if they actually believed that you wanted transformation, they would pitch together and help yeah. you. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, so there's that. That's the, that is my conservative view. But then a lot of times when I actually in, interact with these people, I realize that there's so much hurt and mental illness mm-hmm. that they literally are not capable of sustaining the right choices to yeah. enter back into society in that way. I've heard the same argument, your conservative view, with uh, from immigrants that come here. Sure. Especially if they come from like war-torn countries or dictatorships. And I don't think they're being mean. They're just like... They see what they've overcome, right? And, and they they can't believe how much opportunity is all around us, mm-hmm. and so it makes them a little bit unsympathetic to folks that were born here. But I can say for myself, like for a longest time, I didn't. I was born here, and I didn't see opportunity. I just didn't know. I just, you didn't know what to look for. Yeah, I was kind of stupid, and was kind of waiting for someone to save me. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how you teach that. And, of course, then there's some that just don't want to be taught that. But but you will find, though, that mental illness is so rampant in the homeless community. Sure. Whereas an immigrant population, they may not have that level of mental illness or they haven't had the opportunity to medicate their problems with drugs and alcohol, which I do think a lot of mental illness is stirred on or increased by the use of drugs and alcohol. And probably the narcotics is the worst thing because sometimes when they get into a state of medication, those medications can spin them off, you know, and do all kinds of things. Um, I don't know. I'm just not an expert on that. So here's what I've tried to conclude. What I've tried to conclude is I want to be obedient to everything that God instructs me to be obedient to. So I try to think about it case by case, moment by moment. Yeah. Whatever the Lord instructs me, I'm not going to figure out. I don't need to ask the Lord, how does this work out or pay back? If the Lord says, give or help, then I'll do that. Right. And that's building your own personal discernment and listening. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also, I feel, what you're saying is that you're treating these people as individuals and not a, a bunch of statistics. Absolutely. Because they're all different and they're all, their problems are unique, their histories are unique. And so that's actually more, uh, there's more dignity. So because I know that I'm going to pass 15 homeless people, 
I don't ever want my heart to get to a point where I go, well, I don't help homeless people because they're not, you know what I'm saying? Right. Because now my heart's just cold and hard and broken. So I try to approach it to say, okay, God, I'm willing to engage whoever you want me to engage. And when I see them, I look at them, I recognize them, and then I listen. Is, this, is there some mission here for me to fulfill? And I used to feel guilty because a lot of times there wasn't a mission. And then I realized that, okay, it's not that you feel bad when there isn't a prompting to do something. But when there is a prompting, how much more important it is to engage. And if we're numbed out and shut down, then, you know, we're we're missing again just opportunity to be involved in this in the kingdom thing that God may may be doing. This quote comes from a guy named Jeremiah Atwater, uh, and there, I don't know a great deal about him other than it was from a sermon that I came across. He was born like 1773. Oh wow! So, and I, I believe he was addressing something that was happening in New England where the, the wealthy were helping the poor, but you know they were being spoiled by their own oh. callousness. And, of course, the poor were, I think, being kept somewhat dependent. If you want me to really view the quote from the other side, mm-hmm. the more negative side, I do think that we see in politics a empowering of the poor for political influence. And that's tricky because myself, I lean more to the left than I used to. When I was younger, I was much farther to the right, maybe extremely right. Then mm-hmm. as I've aged and as I've engaged with life and learned more about the kingdom of God and learned more about God's heart for people, I've, progressed, I've become more and more progressive. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I'm probably to the left, more left of center politically than I've ever been in my life. But I still see the weaponizing of poverty for political influence. Sure. And that's certainly not God's heart either. Next quote. Sleep itself does not always come to the relief of the weary in body and the broken in spirit, especially when past troubles only foreshadow coming disasters. As someone who doesn't sleep a lot anyways, (laughs) (laughs) I understand that we need physical sleep. So I try to get at least five hours a day. That's not I mean, enough, my friend. Yeah, that's kind of my goal, okay. five hours. If I can get five, every once in a while I get six or seven hours. So physical sleep is good. Rest is different than sleep, though, right? Yeah, because you don't necessarily have to be asleep to do a rest. I feel like rest is super important. I wouldn't say it's more important for sleep because... God obviously created our physical bodies to need sleep or we wouldn't have clocked out, you know. But rest is something that's really, really important. And so rest can help you um, even if you're without sleep. So give me an example of how you rest. Sometimes rest is just doing nothing, like sitting. So I've moved more towards a contemplative prayer life. So I'm a, a little bit less petitionary prayer than like listening prayer. So I've, that's a, been a big move. After I turned about 40 years old, the last five or six years, I've really been practicing contemplative prayer. That's the prayer model of listening. So for me, rest can be finding quiet time. And I always like pull up an imaginary empty chair or a real, sometimes physically an empty chair, and I invite the Lord to sit with it. And so rest can come from listening to the Lord or just being in the presence of the Lord, an invitational space 
I find that to be very empowering. Or sometimes, like, when I just feel overwhelmed or it's too much, I've had the ability to, like, lay down on a bed or a couch for 10 to 15 minutes in the middle of the day and just empty your brain and let your body go loose. Mm -hmm. And I have found those to be very, very powerful things to do because I can come up from that and grind really hard for four hours from 10 or 15 minutes of rest. For someone that's maybe trying to figure out like how to pray and how to do that, what you just Mm -hmm. described, the, the Buddhists would say, how do you keep the monkey mind from distracting you in that silence? Right. I did a training at a Franciscan monastery on contemplative prayer. And the first task was to go away without electronics or any distractions and to sit in silence for four hours. I would say that I spent two hours just being angry because I was I hated it. I okay. hated it. Um, was this at a like a facility? Yeah, I was at a, at a monastery at, at, out in Arizona. Okay. And so I waited there for two hours in my room. I was very frustrated and angry. Then I gave up on the exercise and thought it was stupid. <laughs> and so I fell asleep for about an hour and 45 minutes because I'd given up on it. And I'd set my alarm to wake up because we were to go back to a small group and discuss the experience of contemplative prayer. And I remember getting up, I was putting on my shoes, and I was sitting on the end of the bed, and I felt like the Lord said something to me. And I don't remember exactly what it was. I wrote it in a journal. It was like two sentences. It's about how the Lord felt about me or whatever. Mm-hmm. I go back in this small group, and everybody agreed that it was a struggle because your mind occupies so much of that space and your mind can torture you, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm also like, at the time, again, in my early 40s, I was like the youngest person in the room because a lot of people don't embrace sort of formative formation or contemplation until they get older in life. That makes total sense to me, yeah. So it's sort of what they call a second half of life exercise. Mm -hmm. And I try to train people in the first half of their life to do it because I think it'd be so beneficial but in the first half we're fearful and insecure and we're working hard and grinding and trying to make everything happen so we go around the room and everybody some people are giving these very elaborate things oh this massive encounter with God and some people are like oh I didn't have much or well I thought about this or the ones that I loved was like well I looked out my window and saw a bird and man I just looked at the bird and God said the bird and whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, give me a break. (laughs) So it comes around to me in the circle. And I said, I hated everything about it. I was frustrated with myself and with God. I gave up. I fell asleep. When I woke up and I read these two sentences. And I'm kidding you not, like the whole room was, was weeping. Really? And they were like, I mean like... All these people with gray hair, they're just clapping and like, oh my gosh, you just hear the Lord. So It was so powerful. Just so powerful. Wow. So I said to the instructor, this Franciscan dude, I said, I don't get this. Like, why was I commended for essentially saying that I felt the whole thing was fraudulent? <laughs> you know? And he began to explain. He goes, he goes you're experience was textbook it was a perfect illustration of how it works that when you enter into silence 
the first awareness you have is how badly you need silence. And it becomes a agonizing struggle. But when you actually fell asleep, when you actually said, I give up, that was actually the moment where you began to do it. Because you, you finally have abandoned the monkey mind, if you want to put it that way. You abandon the monkey mind. So you, you give up and you surrender to it. And in the surrendering of it, then the Lord was able to speak. I put it this way. I think the Lord is always speaking to his children. And I think he's speaking to those who don't know him as well. I think the Lord is always speaking. But it's the same concept as how many radio frequencies are going over our head mm-hmm. through our bodies all the time. But you need that tuner to receive the, the transmission. So positioning yourself in a place of silence and even in a way lowering your expectation of God, it tunes the frequency so that you can hear what the Lord is encouraging you or speaking in you. And you know, you've had seasons where I call it great companionship, the great companionship where maybe you and your wife or you and a friend, you don't really engage or talk, but it's the presence, it's the companionship mm-hmm. piece that's there that becomes very powerful and healing in a way. And so I also recognize that when we're speaking about God, companionship of God, the companionship of His presence is very healing and powerful, even though we may not understand how it works. Let me ask you this, because sometimes, I, I think when I take walks in the woods, for example, or down the road, I tend to contemplate the things that I'm seeing around me, like stuff on the ground. Sure. And it inspires thought of some sort. Now, sometimes I like to think that, well, that's God speaking. But then other times I think, well, maybe that's just the monkey mind. I feel great after I get done. I feel edified. And sometimes I've, I've really hit on some things that I think are helpful. But I wonder sometimes that that's the devil's distraction. What do you say to that? How is the devil going to use the creation to distract us from the creator well but the devil has to use things that have been already created right and there's some famous quote about that i think that he can't create anything he just has to use what's already there so i guess you could look at like the people that are what they call them um what's the ones that worship nature is it pantheist or yeah pantheist yeah i mean i've heard some of the stuff they come up with and i don't think that sounds like the god that i know but maybe i'm being judgy well, I always say pantheist versus Paul. So the pantheist says that God is a rock. God is a tree. The tree is God, or the okay. rock is uh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Paul consistently said in Christo, in Christ, Christ is in all things. Mm-hmm. So Christians struggle with this terminology majorly because they think, oh, this is a new age, this is a new world, blah, blah, blah. I believe that Christ is in the tree. I'm not saying that the tree is Christ. I'm not saying the tree is God. I'm saying God is in the creation. And so God's inness, <laughs> to make up a word, his inness in the creation, if we're going for a walk and our heart is aligned to pick up the frequency, then we should be connecting with the Lord. And yes, I mean, is it the devil distracting us or is it our monkey mind distracting us? Is it just the fact that 
we saw something out in the real world that's distracting. I don't know if it's the devil or not. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is. It doesn't matter. I don't give it a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that quote is from Frederick Douglass. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of my favorite guys. I, I would say that if anybody wants to understand American history, he, he's almost like the perfect American. Mm. Like he understood the importance of the individual and liberty and he uh, suffered a great deal, but he never seemed to have much bitterness. And he forgave the people that enslaved him. And in fact, there's a wonderful scene he describes where he goes to the, Mr. Ald, I can't remember his first, maybe Thomas Ald, the, the man who sent him to get whipped and beat, and he sent him to a quote-unquote nigger breaker, a, a guy who was supposed to break his spirit. Uh, Frederick Douglass went to see him on his deathbed, and uh, they, uh, basically buried the hatchet and they were able to meet as two men that were kind of caught up in history. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But the, the all, Mr. All was humbled, whether it was by the palsy that he had at the time or that he knew he was at the end of his life and his conscience was getting the better of him, or the fact that he had become a national symbol of you know hatred and cruelty because Frederick Douglass had published his autobiography so his name became kind of a byword for, you know, the the slave, the cruelty of the slave system. Wow. Next quote: If I cannot inspire love, I will cause fear. Well, that's a triggering comment for me. Um, <laughs> okay. How so? Well, first of all, the quote. It's just immoral in its basis. I mean, I would hope that if it's a moral person, for whatever that means, that it's a uh, externalizing internal fears because I think that is the ultimate challenge is to inspire love. Even if the extent of that inspiration is just yourself loving better tomorrow than you did today. That one task is nearly impossible and would break a man's spirit (laughs) to learn how to love. That's a very difficult challenge. Have you been tempted to get so frustrated because you tried to inspire love or give love and it was rejected or ignored and you're like, well, screw that guy. Here comes what he needs or here comes my wrath. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know how much you or your listeners have ever looked in Enneagrams, but I'm an Enneagram 8 which is an anger triad and typically dictators and (laughs) leaders have Enneagram 8 personality traits. And so I certainly understand the instinct to instill fear in people. So certainly like when you're younger and you want people to respect your leadership, then you tend to bring an authoritarian perspective to things. But, you know, again, this is an age thing entering into the second half of your life you realize that you don't really inspire people with fear you inspire people with unconditional love and which is why I think it's such a primitive view of God who sees the action and punishment attributes of God as his primary motivation like I'm going to be good or obey God because he will be angry with me that is a very authoritarian view of God. And because we know that God is love, as the text says, that he is the existence of love. And the existence of love is he. I love Jesus says, I am fully in my Father and he is fully in me. 
and I am in you and you are in me. Like he entangles this concept of an entanglement between the Father and the Son and and the heir to the kingdom of God, us. We're all entangled in this thing which is love. So our nature or our fear is is going to be to be authoritarian, but our purpose or the reason I think we're here is to develop love. So I, I would say that when I was younger in leadership, there was much, I was much heavier handed with people, much more authoritarian, much more offended and insecure if people didn't respond to my leadership. But it was all built on fear and insecurity in myself. I felt insecure about my capacity to be a leader. So I think a lot of authoritarians have to be authoritarian because they are insecure in their ability to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the great leaders use love to inspire people and they follow them. So you recognize that probably a lot of dictators in their minds are trying to inspire love or maybe at the very least do what's best for everyone in their minds. Yeah, I I would say that most dictators have an incredible amount of insecurity. It seems like a paradox because it seems like they're so secure and so sure of themselves. But if you have to murder people who practice dissidence, to me that's the ultimate symbol that you are fearful Mm -hmm. and insecure in your ability to inspire people. That you have to threaten death for obedience. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a lot of people see God that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the workings of the enemy. Mm -hmm. I think that is satanic in nature for anybody that views God in that way because I just don't believe that is who God is. I mean, how many times could God have just annihilated? I mean, if I were God, would you keep any of us around? At my low points, no. (laughs) I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, who of us deserves life? None of us. You give us enough time. I mean, you look at the you look at the conditioning of the world, and you're like, who wouldn't just wipe this off the face? I mean, the Lord could just pinch the planet in His fingers and build a new one. True. Well, let me bring up another controversial uh, subject. There are some again in the progressive end of Christianity that reject the uh, concept of original sin, the depravity of man. man yeah. yeah. And they're saying like, hey, we're all okay. Do you think that's true or an, an error? Well, define okay. We're all genuinely good people. We're not as bad as maybe the, the fire breathers would say, you know, the, the Bible thumpers or maybe St. Augustine or somebody, something like that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's a really, really um, broad question. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of nuances, that I think, that would come into that. I would say that as a young Christian, I believe that we were all inherently evil and that if we were smart enough to obey the Lord then we become holy and then that caused me to judge people who did not follow God as being ignorant right and then therefore I've positioned myself in an authoritarian power position so what I see is that God has created all men in his image and so in that image there is something that is inherently good but that goodness is corrupted by the wickedness and the free will that we talked about earlier of the earth so we have the free will to be wicked 
And I think the natural tendency living in, being exposed to sin is why we are wicked. But I don't think that we're naturally wicked in, in the same way that maybe I used to believe. Mm-hmm. You know, and people would say, oh, even a baby from its first breath crying is a sinner. And it's like, yeah, or they're clearing the mucus out of their throat so they can breathe. You know, like, there has to be something good and beautiful beautiful in the creation, right, uh-huh. that God recognizes as part of his image, or why would he express any love towards us at all? Why would he develop the beauty that's there? And and beauty kind of pops up in the places that we least expect it to, right? Yeah. You know, it's like the flower. I remember I grew up around horse and cow fields, and you could walk across the field and you see a flower growing out of a big, giant horse turd you know <laughs> yeah and you're like wow there's a flower growing out of this turd there's your next sermon yeah exactly and so it's like i do believe that we're wicked because we have been so influenced by the brokenness of this earth but the beautiful part that we can't explain is that we're made in his image and that beauty comes from the most surprising places and really like we think about art whether it's poetry or a movie or a painting, or a poem, or a song. The art that inspires me the most is art that reflects the reality of the dark place that we live. I think it was uh, Morgan Cromwell who wrote a book that I love called Chasing Francis. And he talks about beauty in the arts, and he says that the arts are to display and I'm paraphrasing this because I can't remember exactly, but art that displays the goodness of God in the brokenness of the world where we are is true Christian art. He actually was like an advocate against, say, Christian music Mm -hmm. or Christian art because he said Christian art is manipulated to become a propaganda piece to influence people to follow God. Mm Mm-hmm. Or as he says, true art is just the expression of something that's beautiful in the nastiness of the planet that we're living in. Hmm. So that that art, the goodness of God, is highlighting. It's that the light of it is overpowering the darkness. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. You know, that's pretty good. So the quote was written by Mary Shelley, the writer. She put it into the mouth of Frankenstein's monster... Now, I don't know if you've ever read the novel, but it's quite a bit different than the movies. But, you know, the monster gets created by the scientist. He's created life, and he ends up running around. Uh, He's rejected by his Dr. Frankenstein, and so he's looking for love. Mm. He's looking to be accepted. And, of course, everyone rejects him because he's, maybe with the exception of a child or something, because he's so hideous, Mm -hmm. and he's deformed and made out of several spare body parts from the graveyard. So... Uh, at some point he gives up and he becomes the monster that everyone assumed he was by his appearance. Mm. Thus the fear. Man, that's good. And last quote. Your ashes have been long scattered. Your sins and follies no one remembers. And for ages you will remain perfect like your book drawn by thought from nothingness. 
You knew bitterness and you knew doubt, but the memory of your faults have vanished. And I know why I cherish you today. Men are small, but their works are great. I feel like today we're going through history and pulling up everyone's sin and bitterness. Awesome. Well, let's talk about that then. Yeah, sure. Are you talking about like cancel culture? Cancel culture, sure. So why is cancel culture a problem? So a lot of folks, we're just purging. We're getting rid of the, the, the chaff. We're getting mm-hmm. rid of the, the bad influences. The... Yeah. Well, we actually, you know, I did an episode on the Catacomb podcast about, uh, about cancel culture this month. And I'm kind of, you know, part of me is torn on it because, again, I was saying that there's some parts of me that are leaning far left now. And so it's like I obviously do feel very much that we need to recognize the folly of some of our American heroes and Mm -hmm. recognize that we want to live in a standard that is better than our ancestors. So we've mutually agreed that slavery is not good. Mm -hmm. So I don't own slaves. And so I think recognizing that our ancestors and some of our heroes that did great works did own slaves is okay to recognize that. Erasing them from history, I don't believe is beneficial because you're erasing the good, bad, and the ugly, you know? Now, as this quote implies, through time, and especially, I would say, in history, we do tend to forget the details of people. Mm-hmm their character, the nuances of their personality, how they treated someone in the marketplace may not be reflected. In our culture today, where we have such high capacity computing power that we can keep track of everyone's comments and thoughts. I mean, if history one day looked at all of my comments from 20 years ago on Facebook, I'd be canceled probably, you know? Um, Or maybe in the future they would say the things I'm ashamed of would make me a good person 20 years from now. I don't know, you know, because we don't know which way culture will continue to move. That's something I wonder about, what's happening today that's going to be canceled 20 years from now or or be considered an unforgivable sin. Oh, sure. Because obviously people 20, 50 years ago didn't know. That's right. I would say this on the cancel culture. I think that we need to recognize that if we want to use this left word progressive, that we have progressed in certain ways that our ancestors didn't. That just is good to kind of monitor and acknowledge where we're at as humanity as we grow through time and space. And to be fair, a lot of these folks that are getting canceled were progressives of their time. I mean, they they had progressed uh, beyond their fathers or grandfathers' generations. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's right. So I think acknowledging it, I don't know about erasing it from history. I mean, I think it's wildly acceptable to say that there was a lot of humility with George Washington. He didn't want to be president, but he did step up in leadership. And this is the kind of leader that we should be. Oh, he also owned slaves. Mm -hmm. So look where we've progressed from there, that we don't own slaves. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying George Washington doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. or everything he did was bad because of... How many things as a Christian do I practice today that my great-grandfather as a minister, my grandfather was a primitive Baptist minister, he would be appalled at the fact that I have tattoos. He would be appalled at the fact that we have worship at church, let alone the fact that I listen to music that's loud and aggressive sometimes. 
he would be appalled that we wore shorts. And to, that you own a cigar store. Oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> I own a cigar store for sure. Okay. So, um, but a lot of those things are now acceptable because the culture has made them acceptable. Mm -hmm. I think cancel culture is more important today when you have people that use their power and influence to hurt others, okay? And a Jeffrey Epstein type of person. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, I guess he canceled himself or the government did, who knows, but <laughs> <laughs> the conspiracy. Oh man, yeah. But I would say someone like that that has a power of position that uses it to injure and hurt people, mm -hmm. those are the people we need to cancel. Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't cancel George Washington, you know what I'm saying? And to be fair to Mr. Washington, he did wrestle with he did, the morality yeah. of slavery. In fact, his resolve was to free his slaves when he died. But back to Epstein, I just last week watched a documentary about some of the victims of him. Yeah. And I was watching it, and of course, there was someone else in the room, and they were like, man, that guy was horrible. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, but in my head, I was thinking, like, I have the potential, and I've fought evil things, uh, and I've done a few evil things in my time, too, you know. I feel like the distance between most people and Jeffrey Epstein is not that far. A lot of it with him is he had the money and the power to get away with all the things we may have secretly wanted to get away with. You know. Well, I think any of us, if we intended on being a predator, that we could figure out how to prey on anyone. But do you have the money, wealth, and influence and experience to be an expert predator? And right. that's what he was. He was an expert yeah. predator. And he exposed people's need and poverty and fear and addiction to get what he wanted essentially mm -hmm. and people in power have been doing that forever well sure you know? yeah so i would say that cancel culture is probably more um connected to our modern day um needs and our need for people to treat others with love and dignity mm -hmm. now the other part of that statement that i recognize is an idea of called legacy um, and really, what we're, when you're saying that works last above even our character, sometimes we're talking about legacy. We're talking about what kind of legacy do we want to leave? And we have no idea if that legacy will be remembered or recognized by anyone. But, you know, I was telling you earlier that my grandmother's passed, so I'm thinking she passed yesterday, so I'm thinking about legacy in her late 90s. She outlived all of her friends. And you start thinking about legacy. What was her legacy, her good works? And her legacy and her works were not, were um, the investment in family, you know, when she was younger. That's where her legacy came. She never was a public person. She never had a Facebook profile. You know? <laughs> History will not remember her based on her tweets, you know. Right. Because she, she wasn't a part of that culture. You remember Reagan's trickle-down economy. Like, she... Her legacy is a trickle-down trickle legacy. It's trickled down through, through generations mm -hmm. by investing in that generation right below you. Mm -hmm. So she invested in my mother. My mother invested in me. I'm investing in my children. So her legacy is still alive in us in that way, but it just looks different. It's not public in the way that some people's legacy would be public. You talked about legacy, and a lot of people are concerned... I think it happens maybe towards the, the next half of their life, as you put it. Mm -hmm. They start to realize, like, oh, man, how do I want to be remembered? Mm -hmm. And I guess you could say there's some vanity in that. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, I wonder, from a theological point of view, do you think God will allow us to see, like, what happens after we go? Or will we even care? Because 
I, I think about my own grandparents and the things that I could never repay. I didn't even recognize while they were alive, like the things they did for me. And I hope, hope they can see now that I recognize it and I'm now trying to imitate them and repeat that. So my question is, is there anything scripturally that kind of backs up that possibly they are allowed to see the result of their legacy, whether it was good or bad, from the other world? Well, I think that, you know, we see these ideas of the judgment throne. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's somehow that God highlights or acknowledges their faithfulness and how that has affected change in the world. And I would say that that probably, for most people, will be much greater than we've acknowledged in ourselves. But yes, I mean, as we enter the second half of life, some of it may be driven by ego. But it, you know, we're taught, even in Buddhist, Buddhism and Christianity, we're taught that in the second half of our life, our ego becomes smaller mm-hmm. anyway. So the tendency for the motivation to be ego is a little bit less as we age. But it's also about, I think, in, in Christianity, which is where I can speak from, is um, the idea that we want to be good stewards of the time and energy and provision the Lord gave us. Stewardship is the way I look at it now. So I am thinking about my legacy, and I'm thinking about stewardship with the Lord. But as far as do people look on the earth and see, I don't know. I, I don't feel like that would be much of a of a heavenly space if I had to mentally process all the crap that my family members were involved in or the brokenness of the world. But then again, they're in God's presence, so how would that transform the way we receive that information? I guess the only reason why that enters my head is like sometimes you, again, it's my hope, I hope that people that have helped me that are gone can see that uh, they've been a good influence and also now that I recognize it, like I said, but also, you hear sometimes you hear some stories where people have dreams or they'll have visions where someone from, from death has come to say, mm-hmm. like, hey, they may give some kind of word of encouragement or they might give some kind of insight or they may forgive them even. You hear like kind of these ghost story type of things. And who knows if any of that stuff is true. Mm-hmm. But I think as humans, we want that to be true. Yeah. I remember that I was sitting in a church uh, service once I was in a charismatic church meeting and I had what I would consider an open vision where I saw my grandfather who was a primitive Baptist preacher and I just audibly saw him smiling and saying I'm proud of you that's great and and so I I, and I, I hadn't remembered that until you brought that up but I remembered that experience happening probably when I was maybe about 10 years ago about my mid-30s and I remembered that um, at the time I was um, really questioning if the things I was putting energy into mattered, you know, if they made a difference, if they mattered. And, and now whether that was real, like was that a God thing? Like mm-hmm. did, did we have like this across the planes of existence, right? Mm-hmm. Did, did we have a connection? Was that real? I don't know. Um, but either way, I feel like the Lord used that to encourage me in the moment. Um, and even if I had totally dreamed it up it's it's interesting that my brain would come up with an encouragement in the midst of a place of fear you know so god uses all things including yeah, uh, right. delusions <laughs> not just our sin but our delusions right yeah maybe man what a great segue full circle as right. they say yeah the source of the quote i'm not going to be able to pronounce this guy right 
his name right. Um, he's an Eastern European. Uh, we'll say Szczeslaw Milosos. Milos. And it was from a series of poems, him meditating on his, his father. Mm. And I, what I gather from the poems, his father was not a perfect man. Mm. And maybe he didn't, wasn't able to forgive him while he was alive. But now, now that he knows what he knows, uh, he saw him with more grace, if I remember correctly. Man, that's good. Don't you love that? There's the beauty of the creation there, even in that. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks for yeah, thank coming you. by the woodpile. Yes, I love the woodpile. All right. <laughs> <laughs> If you've enjoyed hanging out with Joshua Stump, definitely check out his podcast he hosts with Jay Newman called Catacomb. And if you're still in a philosophical mood, In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 221 is a good one, featuring poet and musician Steve Scott, who talks about art, faith, and the Gospel of John. And then, of course, there's the 20-something episodes of Trying to Herd Cats that we've done already. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 